0: Um, I thought at this stage in the afternoon I'd start with some images. Uh, One of them is the image in the middle of the title slide and I'll come back to that later. Um, The next is a picture of figures moving through a landscape of rubble, of surreally twisted buildings. Um, But in in the background, just behind the ruins, you can just make out the shapes of tiny shanty-like houses appearing. This is Hiroshima almost a year after the dropping of the atomic bomb, as the survivors struggle to recreate life in a place where every semblance of normality has been wiped off the face of the earth. And I think that even if we've seen images of Hiroshima and Nagasaki many, many times before, it's really important to look at them again and to remind ourselves that this is what nuclear weapons are for. This is what they do. Um, there are also a number of images outside um, in the photographic display that I would urge you to look at. But uh, there's another reason why I wanted to show you these images. Uh, the person who painted these pictures was a Melbourneian, the Australian war artist Reg Road. In fact, he was a lecturer at one of the precursors of RMIT. And these are some of a se- series of powerful paintings of the ruins of Hiroshima, which Rowe had completed in 1946. Um, these paintings, I think, are reminders of the complex relationship that exists between Australia and Japan. The immediate Australian response to the atomic bombings, um, of course, tended to be like this. There were exceptions, but it tended to be triumphal. And I think even if we understand the historical reasons why there was that triumphal response doesn't stop us kind of cringing when we look at headlines like that today. But of course, a large proportion of the Australian troops who took part in the Allied occupation of Japan were stationed in Kure, which is right next door to Hiroshima. And therefore, they very quickly came into contact with the effects of the atomic bomb. They saw the city shortly after its devastation. And some saw and acquired photographs like this one taken very immediately after the dropping of the bomb, on the day the bomb was dropped. Now, one of the early acts of the incoming occupiers was to impose very strict censorship in Japan, particularly on reporting about the atomic bombings and particularly on the showing of images of the effects of the atomic bombings for fear that, you know, that would provoke resistance to the occupation amongst Japanese people. So, when Red had painted his, uh, his pictures of Hiroshima in 1946, no Japanese artist could exhibit works showing the effects of the bombings, and no Japanese newspaper could publish photographs of the effects of the bombings. And it wasn't until considerably later, around about 1950, that Japanese people started to be able to see images of the effects of the bombings. Some of the first images they saw were remarkable artworks by a husband and wife artist team called Maruki, Iri and Toshi. And this is one of their series of Hiroshima panels showing the, the moment of the bomb. But if we look closely at Red Road's paintings, I think there's something else that I find very interesting about them. Um, and that's the style in which they're painted. They're very much influenced by the traditions of Japanese ink painting, and completely different from any of the paintings that Rhodes did before he went to Japan. So already just a year, less than a year after the end of the Pacific War, Australians who had been sworn enemies of the Japanese were already being influenced by their encounter with Japan. In the decades since Road painted his pictures of Hiroshima, Australia and Japan, of course, have developed a, a remarkably close relationship, um, a comprehensive partnership I think is what our governments like to call it. Um, and it's not just a government-to-government partnership or relationship as we all know. There are, there are a whole lot of people-to-people relationships through tourism, education and all sorts of things. Just, To give one example, in 2007, um, around 90,000 Japanese students visited Australia for various sorts of educational activities. Japanese is the most studied foreign language in Australian schools and so on. But in spite of the closeness of the relationship, I think there are areas where there's still an awful lot that we could do and we haven't done yet. And one of those main areas is civil society cooperation. Um, Back in the late 1980s, I once tried to organize a conference panel about civil society cooperation between Japan and Australia. And we got three very fine papers, and basically all of them concluded that there is virtually no civil society cooperation between Japan and Australia, with a few very small exceptions. I think, you know, rotary exchanges and things like that came up. Now, since then, I think quite a lot has happened, um, and, you know, a number of the people who were engaged in the meeting here today are very central to that. So groups like the Medical Association for the Prevention of War have developed links to Japan. Japan's peace boat, um that uh, Mr. Kawasaki will uh, tell us about very soon has visited Australia and developed links to Australia. Um, And the group, Japanese for Peace, based here in Melbourne, has done what I think is quite remarkable work, bringing together peace activism in Australia and Japan through concerts and public forums and a whole range of activities. So the foundations for a closer civil society relationship between Australia and Japan are starting to come into, into being. But there's still an awful lot that we could do, a lot, a lot more that we could do. And I want to argue not only that there is a lot more that we could do, but that this is a wonderful opportunity to do it. To use a good old uh, phrase from Australian politics way back in the past, it's time, I think. Um, now, there are some things, there are some obstacles, some things that, have been, that I think have held this back a bit. On the Australian side, we have a, a strong and active tradition of uh, civil society so, uh, social movements engaging themselves in politics, and I think that's still very strong today. We've recently seen the development and considerable influence of new social movements like Get Up and so on. But if you look at many of those movements, the nuclear weapons issue, which used to be, I think, very central to the work of social movements in Australia seems to me to have slightly sort of fallen off the the wagon of agendas um, that many of the social movements are talking about. Um, On the Japanese side, I think many Australians, when they look at Japan, see a place that seems to be rather quiescent, that doesn't seem to have a lot going on in the way of social movements. We very rarely see pictures in the media of big demonstrations on Japanese streets. Um, In fact, there's very little reporting in the English language media of social movements in Japan at all, with the possible exception of some reports about far right-wing social movements in Japan, like, uh, for example, the um, uh, historical revisionist right-wing groups that have tried to push for more nationalism in Japanese history textbooks. But actually, Japan has a long and continuing tradition of civil society activism. Um, However, a lot of that has taken place and still takes place in quite small groups that are dispersed right across the country. One of the things that always impresses me when I go to small towns in Japan is how many of them have very interesting Social movements, but often around local issues, local environmental issues, protests against the local American base, or whatever. Um, I just wanted to uh, mention two examples that I find interesting. Um, one is something called the Lucky Dragon 5 Museum, which is, was created in the 1970s in a port area of Tokyo, Um, it exhibits a boat called the Lucky Dragon, which many of you may have heard of, uh, which in the 1950s was irradiated by fallout from the first U.S. hydrogen bomb test. Um, And the museum staff run a whole range of interesting educational activities about the effects of nuclear weapons. Another example is the Grassroots Peace Museum in Kochi, a city in the southern island of Shikoku. Um, which links questions of peace um, to questions of Japan's historical war responsibility. That's just two examples. There are many, many others. But, you know, why have these groups been relatively invisible? They tend to be neglected by the mainstream media in Japan, and also, I think, because Japan for half a century was dominated by a single conservative party, the Liberal Democratic Party, many social movements like this felt very alienated from the national political process. But I want to argue that um, the the new international push for nuclear nonproliferation and nuclear disarmament offers a really historic opportunity for Um, Australians to become more familiar with these groups in Japan and to develop new links to those groups. Our two countries, of course, have played a key role in initiating this new push. And now we have the statements, positive statements from President Obama. um, And of course, we have the new Democratic Party government in Japan. So, a really historic change of government in Japan. How, you know, how big a change in politics that will create remains to be seen because the new government has only just been initiated. But one of the things that I do think has happened is that because the Liberal Democratic Party has been basically thrown out after half a century of rule, um, social movements in Japan will have a great deal of encouragement to engage themselves again in the political process and to try and approach the political parties to influence them in ways that they probably didn't feel able to do before. So I think it's a moment of hope, but I think it's also a moment when complacency would be fatal. The new nuclear disarmament initiative has real potential to change the world, but as we've seen, it's going to be a really hard road ahead. Um, And success is only going to be achieved if the high level commitment by politicians and negotiators is backed up by a strong civil society push to to use another good Australian political phrase, to keep the bastards honest. Um, So what are the practical steps forward? Um, I think just to give a few to suggest ways we might go. First of all, I think we need a better map of civil society groups that already exist in our two countries, in Australia and Japan, so that we know, you know, what there is there and where possible linkages could be created. Secondly, I think we need to mobilise the connections that already exist between the two countries, for example, the language issue. Now, we've got lots of people in Australia who speak and study Japanese. Let's mobilise some of them to translate material about nuclear arms, peace issues, and to exchange those. In a visual and internet age, I think we need to mobilize all the media available to strengthen links between civil society's networks in our two countries, you know, not just through events like this, fine though this is, but also through video blogs and film and music and the arts and so on. Um, And out of that, I think we can create what I want to call an arc of disarmament, an arc of nuclear disarmament from north to south, linking Australia and Japan, but also bringing in countries with strong civil society traditions like South Korea and the Philippines and so on. And I want to finish just by returning to this image. This is the remains of what must have been a large and ornate glass clock, unearthed from the ruins of Hiroshima by an Australian serviceman in 1946 and now in the vaults of the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. I don't know who it belonged to, probably nobody knows who it belonged to, what stories were attached to it. I don't know what the feelings were of the Australian serviceman who unearthed it and brought it back here. Was it just a sort of trophy or did he feel the power and the horror of this object? But for me, I find it a strangely powerful and yet appalling symbol of the task that confronts us and the possibilities that have opened up to us now more than 60 years after the fires of Hiroshima wiped time off the face of this clock. Thank you.